0: What the hell? What was that for?
1: Matthew, have you ever heard the phrase, turn the other cheek?
0: Uh, sure. It's a line from Matthew's Gospel. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. It's probably one of the most well-known teachings of Jesus, which, to be honest, if you ask me, it makes Jesus a little bit of a holy doormat.
1: What if there's another way of interpreting it? The saying says specifically, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, Now, stand facing me, and imagine if I were to hit you on your right cheek.
0: Okay, well, to connect with my right cheek, you'd have to use your left hand.
1: But what if I couldn't use my left hand? What if I lived in a time and culture, such as in the first century, in which the left hand was used for certain unsanitary tasks and was considered unclean? It was the right hand, which was the hand of power, as in sitting at the right hand of God, So how would I deliver a blow to your right cheek, using only my right hand?
0: Well, you'd have to backhand me. Are you going to hit me again?
1: We'll see. What if in that setting, a backhand was not administered to an equal, but to an inferior? As in a master to a slave, a parent to a child, a Roman to a Jew? What if a backhand was not to injure, but to insult? to humiliate, to degrade.
0: Right, so, so your intention as the attacker is to humiliate and insult me through a backhand to the right cheek. So what does it communicate for me as the victim were I to turn my head and offer you my left cheek?
1: Well, I as the attacker can no longer backhand because your nose is in the way, so I'd actually injure you rather than insult you.
0: So your only option to strike me using your right hand is with a fist.
1: Forcing me to strike you with a fist in a first century setting rather than a backhand forces me to accept or acknowledge you not as an inferior but as an equal.
0: So, I have shown an act of defiance. I've made you incapable of asserting your dominance over me. By turning the other cheek I've said I'm a human being just like you. I refuse to be humiliated any longer. I am your equal. I am a child of God. I won't take it anymore. This is asserting my own value and intrinsic worth without denying the intrinsic worth of another, even one who may be persecuting me.
1: So the blow becomes not an act of discipline but is exposed for the bald violence it truly is. You've caused me to see my choice for violence and the impact of my own behaviour on another human being. This is the power of resistance, without retaliation.
2: It's
1: because I respect you, Matthew. Welcome, listeners in podcast land. Whether you're dressed to kill, shooting to thrill, or trying to ingratiate yourself undeservedly into an elderly relative's will, this is the Yondering Podcast, where we explore faith out of bounds.
0: listeners to episode four of season two of the Ring podcast in continuing our exploration of lenses we'll see how dirty our hands get when we put on the lens of resistance when we see faith as a standing up to and a standing against if necessary the systems and structures that deny life and human flourishing
2: Gather round people, I'll tell you a story, an eight year long story, of power and pride. And British Lord Vesty, and Vincent Lingyari, for opposite men, on opposite sides.
1: When we think of resistance and the big exemplars from human history, we think of Martin Luther King Jr. leading marches and giving grand speeches about dreams, We think of Rosa Parks bravely refusing to move to the rear seat of the bus. And in Australia, we think of Vincent Lingari whose story is told in the Paul Kelly song, From Little Things, Big Things Grow.
2: From little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow.
1: In each of these examples, we equate them with the big picture universal values of justice, equality, fairness. But the reality is that Each of these actions involves small steps of resistance, small challenges to local injustices. Luther King didn't begin his work leading a March of Millions to Washington. Lingari didn't begin by challenging federal land rights in the High Court. They began by imagining justice and resisting injustice in their daily lives, challenging local laws and ordinances, local government, local employment policy.
2: Bestie man roared, bestie man thundered You don't stand the chance of a cinder and snow Been said if we fall, others are rising From little things, big things grow From little things, big things grow
0: As they say, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step And from these small, earthy Local examples of resistance, big movements of justice and equality can grow.
2: That was a story of Vincent Lignari, but this is a story of something much more. How power and privilege can unmove a people who know where they stand, stand in the law. When I think about resistance, I think about a poem by a German poet called Peter Wimkoff. He talks about resistance and every verse ends with the line, be malleable, but resist. And one example would be that we've made the decision not to own a car. Because we don't want to support the big oil giants and show the world that we disagree with how they exploit the planet and how they exploit other human beings. When we finished medical school, we decided to dedicate our lives to serving disadvantaged and marginalized communities. I saw a documentary last year that really woke me up to the scale of the harm that the fashion industry is doing. Even though it feels like a massive cultural juggernaut, I decided I had to find some ways to resist the tide.
0: So I also decided to resist the norm of consuming meat. Do I continue to participate in these harmful cultural norms? Or do I choose to resist them?
1: We're now going to hear our interview with American pastor Robin Myers, who is a peace activist, social justice professor, and author of seven books, including his most recent, Spiritual Defiance, Building a Beloved Community of Resistance.
0: Robin is a wonderful preacher and writer on universal themes of justice and equality, but also a practitioner who for the last 30 years has pastored an explicitly progressive congregation in one of America's most conservative states.
1: So Robin Myers, thank you and welcome to Beyondering.
3: I'm delighted to be here.
1: Our first question, what's most life-giving for you about the Christian story?
3: I think it's the incarnation, and that may, be, that may surprise you to hear me say that. But I think the idea that when people were with Jesus and heard him, they had an experience of the presence of God unlike anything they had had before. I don't think of that as metaphysical I don't think of it as grounded in the supernatural but just that this is what God looks like and sounds like if God were a human being I've heard
0: you talk about um, that we've seen a muzzling of truth uh, and a muzzling of the true message of Jesus so what do you see as the true message of Jesus and what causes the muzzling
3: I think Jesus was a teacher of righteousness uh, who gathered disciples outside of the established religious system, outside of the temple, and tried to provide direct access to God and the love of God to people? That he healed for free, which I think made him not popular with physicians. Uh, that he s- spoke Did as he if both he... Bill, <laughs> <Do> you... <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, I I think that, that his message was God's love is unconditional. It's unmediated. It should be unbrokered. Anyone can access it. Don't need to go to the temple uh, and pay your admittance. Um, and that his disciples uh, followed him and, and healed and tried to act in ways similar to the ways he had acted. And that this little sect within Judaism uh, existed for a while uh, until Rome found him a nuisance and uh, executed him as a political revolutionary. And thought that would be the end of it and turn out not to be the end of it. Uh, I don't understand G- uh, Easter as a physical phenomenon, but as a spiritual one. That makes it no less miraculous to me. The fact that I'm not at all concerned about what happened to the body of Jesus doesn't mean I don't believe in Easter. I've been preaching Easter sermons for 30 years in the same church. I think it's quite miraculous that the community went on that the people in the community actually seemed braver and more resolute in their ministry because obviously he was present with them. Now, how are they going to explain that? The way any good first century person would explain it. It comes in and out of walls, speaks to us, we try to touch him. I mean, I have no problem thinking of that as metaphorical language. I have no problem thinking of the empty tomb as metaphorical language. It's still a powerful reality, and that's what's real. So that's what I think happened. I think that's the real message of Jesus. God is pure, unbounded love, pure relationship. Unconditional love is the highest achievement a human can uh, strive for, and we can build communities based on unconditional love, and they, they will be transformational communities. Now, by muzzled, I think that way of life, that way of relating, got replaced very soon by early church fathers angling for power and privilege, and the church quickly evolved from a way of life into a set of creeds and doctrines demanding total agreement. And we've never been the same. Uh, in the in in the um, in my book Saving Jesus from the Church, I talk about how scholars believe that for the first two hundred years early Christians, early Jesus people, the term Christian didn't come along for a long time. Early Jesus people could not wear the uniform of any army. They could not fight. So the waters of baptism meant the renouncing of violence. Then, by the third century, uh, Constantine decides only Christians can be can be uh, Roman soldiers. So we went from no Christians could be soldiers to only Christians could be soldiers. That's mm-hmm. no small change so that's what i mean by the muzzling of jesus i think it was an ethic to begin with i think the sermon on the mount's the heart of christianity not paul's machinations about who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved yeah i think the message originally was very simple i don't think jesus was trying to start a new religion i really don't think he was it got started in spite of him and that then it hardened into sort of an empire of its own. After a while, the church got jealous of the Roman Empire, said, we'd like to have this top-down, all-male hierarchy. Look how well it works. You know, the Roman Empire conquers everyone. Maybe the church can conquer everyone if we'll be more like the Roman Empire.
1: I'm, I'm taken by that explanation that um, that the Romans looked at at the Christian church and said, maybe we can do it that way. Because I, in a way, I wonder if the Christian church hasn't, looked at empire around it and actually thought the same thing. Maybe we can do it that way. Sure.
3: Absolutely. I think in America, there's a Pax Americana. We are the world's only superpower. We are a colossus astride the planet. We have military personnel in 160 some countries. It's interesting to me that Americans don't think they live in an empire and don't want to use the word empire. Mm. But actually... Understanding the gospel as a response to empire, as anti imperial language and behavior, is one of the most exciting areas of scholarship now going on out there. And something that certainly Dom Crossan has talked a lot about, Walter Brueggemann, Richard Horsley, people like that. There's a whole lens through, new lens through which to see the scripture. But it got kind of erased and covered up as quickly as possible. Uh, and we have this meek and mild, gentle as a child. Jesus, not the one who went in and turned over the tables of the money changers and the sellers of sacrificial animals. So, a lot has changed. It changed very quickly. And I'm interested in kind of uh, going back to the future. The reason I think I'm so interested in the early church is that I think it was, in fact, the most, the purest, most non doctrinal, non dogmatic approach to the faith and that it didn't last very long because I think the church created these doctrines in order to exercise power over people. Do you believe this or do you not believe this? Because if you don't, you're not one of us. I I see none of that language in the the ministry and life of Jesus. None. I mean, Jesus never says, go and believe likewise. right? He says, go and do likewise. Mm -hmm. And I think that probably... The younger people, the millennial generation now, in large measures, rejecting the church because they, have, they are hypersensitive to hypocrisy, and if they think that folks are talking about love and forgiveness and mercy and justice, but they're not actually out there doing any of these things, well, what's the point? I mean, you guys can do this outside the church. Anybody can do this outside the church now. Uh, so we have to ask ourselves, so what is the church for? Um, and, and, of course, for, for a lot of people, it's simply not a compelling institution anymore. And if we don't change it and make it more relevant and more compelling, it will go away. Nine churches in the United States close their doors on average every day. Nine churches close their doors in the United States every day. Uh, and that's, this is we used to think this was just old line, main line denominations. In fact mega churches and conservative evangelical and fundamentalist churches are also trending down in membership so the generational shift that's happening is happening across theological and political demarcations
2: I'm faith and I'm far. pigs like peace I say my prayers my eyes I want saw a Christmas. was made of love. If I stand at my feet and say no, then I get put on the naughty seat for being defiant. Does Jesus want us to do what we're told?
3: Does Jesus want us to do what we're told rather than to be naughty and defiant? Well, it seems to me that Jesus did a lot of <laughs> defiant things. So maybe I would say to faith, Um, do what your heart tells you is right um, and don't worry about someone calling you naughty or disobedient.
0: In your books you you speak of faith as resistance we thought faith was about love and grace cucumber sandwiches and wheat cordial what (laughs) do you mean when you talk about faith as resistance?
3: I mean that I think the beloved community is supposed to identify any and all ways that people are denied dignity and justice systemically, in ways in which the world in which we live shortchanges people, keeps them down, uh, insults their dignity, underpays them, you name it, there's a long list, and push back against that by being in, I call in the book, by being in non-compliance with the principalities and the powers. So I'll give you an example. In America, we have these payday loan places. You essentially borrow $200 if you're poor because you can't pay your bills. And if you pay back the loan over the total length of the term of the repayment schedule, you pay back $700. Mm -hmm. Borrow $200, pay back $700. How does this help Mm -hmm. anyone who's Mm -hmm. poor? It's shameful. Mm -hmm. The church ought to try to shut those places down. Mm -hmm. Okay, And one of the ways they can do that is to loan money again at no interest. So one of the things I suggest... I also suggest the church pay property taxes, which endears me to absolutely no (laughs) one. (laughs) But I believe we should, because mostly that goes to help public school students, which we say we love and support. Mm -hmm. So the resistance is just... doesn't necessarily mean only marching in the streets, although that's sometimes called for. It means pushing back in some form resisting those things which degrade and dehumanize our sisters and brothers and keep them down. That's what I mean by resistance. We should be a group that pushes back.
1: Do you think our focus on belief statements actually prevents us from doing that hard work? Well, it, it takes up a lot of energy.
3: A lot of air is sucked out of the room arguing about what you believed and whether believing the right thing would get you certain rewards. It's very strange when you think about it, because let's say you're a person who believes that the virgin birth is an actual biological miracle. It's not a metaphor about being born of the Spirit, not of the flesh. Jesus had no human father. Let's say you believe that to be a biological fact. Okay, number one, you may be right. I always know that when I say I don't believe that, I could be wrong, dead wrong. But let's say you believed and it was very important to you. Okay, how does that change the shape of your day? So, what has a virgin birther done for you lately? <laughs> this is how I would put this. Because if they if it does indeed change the shape of, say, this person's day, who's a literalist about the virgin birth, then more power to you. If the belief really changes the behavior in positive ways, in loving ways, how can I argue with it? My experience, however, is that people argue and argue about what the right interpretation is on church doctrine, and church, but they're not leading better lives. They're simply more self-righteous about the things they believe, not more loving in the way they live. It's a radical shift you're pointing
0: us towards, because when we talk about faith, we would talk about rewards, eternal rewards, what we get out of it or what we need to do, what we need to believe in. To see faith as actually resisting empire or death dealing in our culture or that's a pretty nuts shift between what we've been schooled in faith being and what you're inviting us to consider it as.
3: Well, I hope I hope that's true. It's strange to me that the essential uh, object of faith is to be selfless, is to be less selfish. But then we design these faith systems, which seem like transactions that are very selfish. Yes. I believe a certain thing, I'll, a certain reward, including the ultimate, you know, post mortem reward I, I believe the right things and i'll and I'll go to heaven well if if faith is really about emptying yourself and being less selfish and more tuned in more empathic and all of that then we've created a system that works against itself
0: in your books you talk of some of the different types of resistance and in one of your books you speak of resistance to ego resistance to orthodoxy and resistance to empire can you talk to us about that and sure
3: mean? um I was invited to give the Beecher lectures at Yale. I had to have three lectures. So I have three areas to resist. <laughs> How did you pick these three? Is there was some kind of magical. No, I you needed had three. Too. You started off with four. You had to <laughs> yeah. cut one down. I had four, down. cut yeah. one out. Um, I think those were the three areas that struck me as most in need of resistance by the church that I grew up with in the United States. So. Ego, I was talking mostly about the ego of clergy mm. and the fact that by definition, by nature, ministry is a performance. We are in front of people performing and we're often judged on how well we perform. How good was that sermon? How smooth a talker are you in church? Do you stumble over your words are you eloquent and articulate just like they said about jesus when he gave, gave his only sermon indoors yeah. <laughs> wasn't that well spoken i mean I'm paraphrasing here mary you must be proud so well spoken mm-hmm. then he applied it and got almost got killed but so ego is the most i think it is the greatest enemy there is of authentic ministry because if you're mostly concerned about uh, ministry as a popularity contest. You're, you're lost. So I talk about ego in that first lecture and how to resist it. There are ways to resist it. We've already been talking about some of them. Faith's supposed to be a kind of self-emptying proposition. Mm-hmm. The second was orthodoxy, and we've already al- also talked about this. That's pushing back against the idea that there's a right way to believe and a right way to worship, and it's the only right way to believe and the only right way to worship, which is suffocating. makes cranky, judgmental people out of us. And the third was, of course, empire, and I talk about the American empire, and that's when it gets really dicey, even for me in, uh, at Yale, to look out at people who are enriched by the empire, protected by the empire. The empire gives them special tax breaks and advantages, and I want to say, but you should resist it. Oh, really, Robin, how far should we resist it? Should we be pacifists? The answer, to be the short answer, Yes. The Church of Jesus Christ will never, ever seem relevant to vast numbers of young people until we are the last people to sign up to go to war. I believe that as passionately as anything I believe. We should be the hardest people to talk into taking up arms, not the easiest people. And in America, uh, the, the demographic that supports war in the United States, these are our wars of choice, our preemptive wars, not wars of self-defense, are evangelical Christians. So that they, they take the polls, the demographics are, um, evangelical Christians are the most strongly in support of U.S. involvement in war. should be exactly the opposite of that. So anyway, those are the three things. Ego, don't think it's a popularity contest. Orthodoxy, don't think it's a belief system. And empire, don't think that you can get too cozy with the empire and still be a follower of Jesus. You can't. He obviously resisted enough that the empire took him out. None of us. The empire struck back. (laughs) Right. The The empire strikes back. That's right. Um, And you know what? All of this, I see all kinds of twenty and thirty and even forty somethings reading about and studying um, figures in history. That are very Jesus-like, but they don't think of Jesus as having any of those characteristics. They think of him as being hopelessly kind of captured in stained glass, mm-hmm. and sort of the boring rituals of their parents and grandparents. Mm-hmm. Like they don't see Jesus as cool, yeah. uh, but he was he revolutionary.
0: Or <laughs> they it don't see him. Mm-hmm.
3: Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young said the fir- Jesus was the first nonviolent revolutionary, yeah. mm-hmm. and I heard that growing up, and I thought that might be true. Mm-hmm. That might be true. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've captured him, we've put him in a box, and he seems safe. And the people who follow him seem not to be very revolutionary. Yeah. So until that changes, I suppose we have no yeah. no one to blame but ourselves.
0: Yeah. So, so how have we got there? Like, how is ego and orthodoxy and empire
3: so alluring that we keep getting trapped by? it? I took out my cell phone when I was at Yale, and I held it up and said, we all have one of these, right? And we say we couldn't live without one. You guys have cell phones. We all have cell phones. We adore them. This technology has almost become something we idolize. Um, Do we know where the cell phone was made? Do we know under what conditions it was made? Do we know what the people were paid who made the cell phone? The answer is no, probably not, or if we do, we wish we didn't. (laughs) That's what I'm talking about. Empire gives us all kinds of advantages um, that we don't want to give up. And uh, so if the lifestyle is more important than the injustices that support the lifestyle, then we just stay right where we are.
0: And how do we see it? How do we call a bluff on those things, expose them, and, and not be lured by them?
3: Well, by, by taking Jesus seriously enough as a champion of the poor and oppressed, to make their case and motivate people to do something about it. Now, people aren't going to want to do anything about it because they don't want to give up their luxuries. I don't, you don't. I was going to say, that sounds hard. Yeah, it's really hard. (laughs) I ordered my first electric car. I'm on the list to get the new Tesla, the Model uh, 3, the one that's only (laughs) 35000 Which well, because is it's just drooled on the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> and I've put solar pan I'm putting solar panels on my house and I asked my trustees at the church I've pastored for 30 years, can we get some um, some solar panels on top of this church? And they said, Yes, we can. Because I said, people who drive by this church in Oklahoma and see solar panels on it, they're not seeing solar panels on any other church, mm-hmm. that message is going to be very powerful. That's how you do it. Little things. Everybody thinks, well, oh, I can't do enough, so I won't do anything. No, you should do something. Mm. You yeah. should do something and be glad that you're doing something instead of nothing. Because a lot of little somethings taken together end up being something big.
1: And you're going to do a, a, a unveiling sermon about you know, re- reflecting the, the power of the sun or something like exactly. that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 We might edit that one out. Um, But I'm I'm so glad in in reading your book, um, I'm so glad that you started with ego. And when you were talking before about not needing to take the story of the virgin birth literally, but hey, if you do, that's okay. So much of my experience of belief and doctrine is about, well, I'm past that, I don't need to believe that anymore, and so you ought to be where I am. And that feels like a really still, a really ego-trapped place to be.
3: Liberals can be fundamentalists in their liberalism. I'm, I'm around kind of enlightened, uh, hyper-intellectual people all the time who are very snarky and judgmental about people who are in a different place than they're in, theologically. That strikes me as unchristian. So I always kind of uh, dress my audiences down about that. Fundamentalism can take many shapes, uh, and we can be fundamentalists in our entitled intellectual uh, state, and that's, that's sin too.
2: I'm Beryl, and I'm a Rotarian. I've been going to my church for 70 years. I tried once to cleanse my chakra, and I must have dozed off. It's nuts to you, sweetie.
1: That's right. It's time for Beryl's Advocate.
2: Sometimes I think I don't even need the church. I feel close to God on my walks through the park with my little dog Muffin. I enjoy singing along to songs of praise on my television. And I regularly donate money to charities like the Guide Dogs and the Royal Flying Doctors Service. When I have some spare time, I even like to knit jumpers for the Brotherhood bins. I'm just as good a person as anyone who goes along to church regularly. So what's the point?
3: Well, Beryl, very good question. I actually sympathize with this because sometimes it's much more pleasant to take the walks and to participate in the causes and to find God in nature. It's much more pleasant than going to church, where you're going to be asked to make a pledge, serve on a committee, hang around with people that aren't always very pleasant. I get it. I I
1: really get it. Speaking as a pastor of 30-odd years. Yes,
3: I get it. However, I think it's not an either-or. I think you should find God in all those places outside the church and do all the things you can to live the spiritual life, but I think you're still going to need to be called into community to sort of complete your spiritual life. I believe that. Now, I may not be able to convince you, Beryl, to believe that, but I think... Once you've had some kind of experience out there, you're going to want to tell someone about it. You're going to want to share it with other people. Bodies have to be in the presence of other bodies in order to be the body of Christ. And there's still nothing that can take the place of faces, smiles, hugs of your congregation. That's still a certain kind of sublime thing that's irreplaceable.
0: So talk to us about your vision of the, what's the role of the church, both for individuals and for the,
3: for the wider society. What is the point of church? Mm. I have asked myself that many times. Thinking, have, have I spent my life doing a good thing? Or could I have spent my life doing a better thing? I don't think I could have spent my life doing a better thing. I happen to live in a very conservative place, theologically and politically. I live in Oklahoma, the reddest of the red states. The Southern Baptist Church is strong there. We have a very conservative political leadership, Tea Party governor. So gay people in Oklahoma are often uh, ridiculed, and they're told they can't marry, that it is Uh, unbiblical for them to marry, they won't produce children, God won't smile on their lives or their choices, and I I am fortunate enough to lead a church that long ago proclaimed that our gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender persons should be welcomed into the full sacramental hospitality of the church. The joy with which our gay and lesbian sisters and brothers came into our church, finally accepted for the first time, was so palpable that I thought to myself, this is the life to which I must have been called, and this must be right. So the fact that it could happen in a church, it could have happened outside the church. I mean, gay people can be welcomed in any kind of other organization, but the fact that the church had been the institution to reject them, and then I was able to pastor a church that accepted them meant so much to them. They wanted so much for the church to accept them that um, I found it a powerful, powerful thing. And I'll tell you, on the night that the Supreme Court, well, on the day the Supreme Court in the United States ruled same-sex marriage illegal in all 50 states, my church, Mayflower, was so well-known as a gay-friendly church that on Facebook a sort of happening took place in which Dozens of same-sex couples who wanted to be married simply converged on our church. All the major television stations in town were there with their trucks in the parking lot broadcasting all this live, and my um, associate minister and I did one wedding after another long into the night. And If you don't think that wasn't joyful, then I would have no way of defining joy for you.
1: That's a fantastic image. It, it strikes me that in a way, given that the church has been conservative and, and slow to, uh, to adapt to change, there's a way in which that action is actually subversive within the community, which is called to be subversive.
3: It is. And the subversive, I'm glad you bring the word up because it's my favorite word to describe Jesus' followers. So I wrote a book called The Underground Church, Reclaiming the Subversive Way of Jesus. And people always say... Well, can't you be subversive for the wrong reason? Of course, yes, you can be. Mm-hmm. I make it clear I'm at, I'm talking about being subversive for the cause of love, and I got the underground church from the underground railroad. That's where that came from, the United mm-hmm. States, where before the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, a vast network of of uh, of people existed to get people secretly from the South to the North or to Canada and to their freedom before they were actually free. So before it was legal, churches, many of these were churches and church people, did the right thing. Okay, they went ahead and did the right thing subversively, secretly. They had all these terms, you were a conductor, and there were all these railroading terms, that's why they called it the Underground Railroad. And there was a church in New York in Brooklyn that would bring, Uh, runaway slaves up through a trap door in the chancel during the morning worship service and auction that slave off to someone who would buy his freedom in the middle of the worship service. Now, I'm telling you, that is church. (laughs) That's what it's all about. That is setting
1: the captives free. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Wow.
0: And it's such a um, challenging idea for the church to be subversive in that it's quite keen to be the opposite of that, to be out there and to be recruiting people to its cause and its Right. And to be at the
1: center rather than at the margins.
0: Yeah. So you're calling for a shift in its place in society.
3: The church has never been good except at the margins. Mm. Once it moves into the center and embraces the dominant culture and stops resisting the status quo when the status quo needs resisting, it begins to fail as an institution. And that's what's interesting about, again, about 20 and 30 and 40-somethings, whether here in Australia or in the United States or anywhere in Europe, anywhere in the world. They seem to be looking for authenticity. This is the feeling I get. They're not seeing it in the church. But if they did see it in the church, I think the church could get a second look from them. Not all of them. Uh, Church may become a sort of permanently small, marginalized um, institution, and that might not be bad. Yeah. I'm not so sure it's bad that we're shrinking all over the place mm. because the church is shrinking and also deciding to do some amazing things now that <laughs> that it doesn't have the luxury of, of being in the arms of the culture anymore. Mm.
0: So what would be your hope for what people would encounter if church was operating the way you'd imagine or would love it to operate? What would people encounter when they came to
3: I think they, I think they would arrive at church knowing that they were welcome. We, we say in the United Church of Christ, whoever you are, wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. And at our church, a very obviously transgender person hands bulletins out to people as they come in. Same-sex couples are holding hands. Um, it isn't a terribly diverse congregation racially because we're in a very white part of Oklahoma City, so we have work to do there. They would know that they were loved they would know that they were valued they would know that in community they had a chance to be more than they could be by themselves and that they could retell an ancient story that's still a powerful beautiful story and find new ways to live it out um, the two strongest human emotions are memory and hope and when the church is at its best it's helping people remember and be hopeful. Ideally, the church can do that if it's being the church.
0: But I've also heard you say that church should be dangerous. Yeah. So what are you putting in the cucumber sandwiches at your church? Uh,
3: (laughs) Arsenic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Why dangerous? I'm fascinated by the fact that we were a hunted uh minority we were a persecuted minority we were a, we had to scratch the sign of the fish on the, on the doorpost to mark another secret meeting of the jesus people because it did used to be dangerous to be a christian now it's mostly just boring to be a christian so i mean i mean when's the last time That's like the 30-year pastor robin <laughs> yeah. when's the last time a sermon showed up on wikileaks huh? there's nothing dangerous about our sermons we're not passing them around in Plain brown envelopes on park benches or in parking garages in the middle of the night.
1: But there are many Christians who try to convince themselves that they are persecuted, or that. that, that, it, that but they're that not. It <laughs> it's a myth. They're yeah. not
3: persecuted. They are embraced. They are part of the dominant culture. Uh, where I live, uh, we talk about the war on Christmas, and mm. not where I live, they're not being persecuted. They are right in the center of the social table. Uh, this is absurd. This is a myth that we have created. So,
1: You've also written that you participate in church in order to be undone. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that? This
3: is a, a phrase that Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, used. He would um, talk about faith as something that would suddenly just leave you completely disoriented, undone, you know, shaken down, like you're sort of of a spiritual nervous breakdown. And Kierkegaard would be writing along his very dense philosophical treatise, and all of a sudden he would interrupt himself to say, I am undone. And he would write that, and then he'd go right back to his dense philosophical writing again. So I've gotten fascinated with this. What did he mean, I'm undone? Well, Kierkegaard believed that the true nature of faith is to not be able to hold on to things, but to be sort of adrift, sort of existentially f- uh, drowning, and the only way you can survive is to relax and float on top of the water, which is an image that Kierkegaard used. And I have found my best moments to be moments when I wasn't sure of how things were going to turn out, that if I didn't just sort of relax and let myself float, that I would sink. And that's what I I mean by undone. Faith is supposed to take us to a place where we would be terrified to go if in fact we didn't have faith.
1: You mentioned before the Jesus Seminar an effort to come to a scholarly understanding of what may have been the actual historical words of Jesus. You're also participating in currently a God seminar. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
3: Sure. Um, There's a group that has formed in the Westar uh, Institute, called the God Seminar, Jack Caputo and some other people are on it. We have about 15 scholars. I'm one of, again, one of the only pastors, but I'm just soaking up what I'm hearing from other people, who know that there's a God crisis in the church, that for a long time, I think there was a Jesus crisis. And lots of books have now been published on the historical Jesus, and people have resources to find their way beyond a supernatural Jesus, if that's what they're looking for. But they're still very upset by the the God language we seem stuck in. This is sort of this theistic language of this male person in the sky who we are fearful of, and yet we we pray to. We even sometimes try to appease with various gifts, say like his only son to cancel out all the sins of the world, that sort of thing. So. Um, what what i'm interested in now is if you don't believe in a personal god how do you pray we're persons how do we have relationship with something that's not personal it's interesting in all the polls taken of again of 20 30 and 40 somethings there's a great turning away from organized religion but there seems to be very little turning away from spirituality and not even very much diminishment of the idea of god just a hunger for that to be defined in some way that's close that's God with us what Tillich called the ground of being or being itself God is moving out of the sky for a lot of people who are not theologians and don't think about this they just don't think God's out there somewhere separate from creation they think God is in creation all the time everywhere and that everything you and I are doing including this podcast is changing something which is changing something else which is changing something else because we live in this luminous web this vast field and quantum physics is proving this to be the case there is no separation that's what quantum physicists are telling us we only have the illusion of separation you and i are separate because your molecules are clumped over there and yours are over there and mine are over here but at the level of the field there is no separation so absolutely everything i'm doing is affecting you in some way which is affecting something else which is affecting something else which is ultimately affecting everything my understanding of god now is this realization mystical realization that there's no separation and that absolutely everything i i do is consequential i have my good days and my bad days i can't just beat myself up all the time because i haven't done all the right things but i can certainly try to do more of the right things because i know when i do that i'm changing something and that's what—that's my sort of emerging understanding of God. Barbara Brown Taylor called it the luminous web. In my church in Oklahoma, if you can believe this, my congregation's favorite name for God is the luminous web. Bunch of Okies out in the, <laughs> out in the sticks, and that's what they're talking about. They're already moving to a non-theistic understanding of God. But it's going to be hard because we don't have the language. We don't have the liturgy. Um... What do we have faith in if, if it's this non-personal web? I mean, that's not, I mean, so, so you're scared one night, you want to say your prayers. Dear web, dear luminous web. Oh, that's real exciting. Worldwide web. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Flying spaghetti monster.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so in in the search for appropriate language to describe this God that flows through us, that connects us, Will you reach to other religious traditions? Oh, absolutely. Yes, because yeah. it's
3: the one thing that that, that joins us to all other religious traditions. Mm. Various yeah. kinds of incarnational models exist everywhere. Um, we've looked up and out and away for God for for a very long time and projected our own sort of human frailties upon that image of God that's up there somewhere doing something instead of grounding it in the natural world, the non-human world. It's been a disaster for the environment for us to think in these pyramid ways, these hierarchical ways, and we're starting to realize that as well. That's all about our God language. Um, I don't know in the end uh, who God is or what God is. I just think there is a transcendent mystery in the universe that is beyond my ability to conceive, but not beyond my ability to access.
0: Your hope for the church moving forward, you've talked about going back to the future Mm -hmm. of recapturing the message of Jesus. What do you imagine faith communities as being going forward?
3: I see them as beloved communities. I would like that to be the name of every church, like the beloved community meeting at a place of unconditional love, a place of trust and generosity, a place of care and compassion, a place that seeks to get people into a place they could not get to all by themselves in the community of the other beloved souls, and a place that inspires us to right wrongs and to correct injustice and to look out for all kinds of little people that the world forgets, constantly forgets, to say either all of us matter or none of us do,
1: well, Robin Myers, thank you for your time and thank you for coming beyondering.
3: It was delightful.
0: Honestly? Honestly.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: that was Robin Myers. You may be interested to know that his book, Saving Jesus from the Church, is featured as an upcoming book in the Beyondering Book Club book, line and Thinker. Head to our website to sign up or to find out more about that. and You can also find details about some upcoming live events as well.
1: While you're there, if you're liking what you're hearing with the Beyond the Ring podcast, if you're enjoying the journey, then why not think about helping to keep this thing on the air and become a Beyonder backer for as little as $3 a month, you can help keep us sustainable. And thanks so much to those who have already become Beyonder backers. Coming up in the next episode of Beyond Ring, we explore the lens of questioning. We'll be interviewing David Felton, a full-time pastor from Arizona and one of the co-creators of Living the Questions, a series of resources for progressive Christianity. He's also a founding member of No Longer Silent, Clergy for Justice, an outspoken voice for LGBTQ rights in both the church and the community at large.
0: And I think it's just selling your birthright when you say, my whole faith tradition is all about affirming what somebody else has written down and how unsatisfying that is for somebody like me. And I know there are lots of other people like that. The real power is the conversation and the realisation that I can ask, ask these questions that I didn't think were safe to ask. And it's an incredible experience of community. So join us next time and keep coming beyondering.
2: Beyondering was established with the support of the Progressive Christian Network of Victoria and Common Dreams. The podcast is edited and produced by Shaz Mullins and relies on the wisdom and coaching of Andy Bruff. To join the mailing list or to find out more information on the podcast, monthly Beyondering live events or book, line and thinker, the Beyondering Book Club, go to www.beyondering.com.au. Anyway. Okay.
1: All right. Stop so, talking gold because we're going to need to turn this off.
0: That's right. Okay.